Hey everyone, Dingo here, and welcome to the Saffron Academy podcast. The objective of this podcast is to be an additional educational resource for our viewers, adventures outside the realm of Saffron. In this, we'll be interviewing some of the best, brightest, most tenacious, and entrepreneurial minds that the cryptocurrency sector has to offer. We want to give listeners a glimpse into the minds of these incredible achievers, how they got into crypto, what their viewpoints are in certain projects, and where they see things going in the future. Saffron Finance does not endorse the viewpoints shared in these conversations, nor should this be construed as any kind of financial advice. But we are interested in giving exposure to a wide range of brilliant investors, developers, entrepreneurs, traders, and so much more. We really hope you guys enjoy this new segment. If you have an idea for a topic or a particular guest request, feel free to write into the show at dingo at saffron.finance. I hope you guys enjoy this, and I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of value this provides. Having said that, our first guest is Hasib Qureshi, a managing partner at Dragonfly Capital, a renowned cryptocurrency venture fund. His track record is nothing short of extensive. <laughs> he's accomplished a lot in such a short time. In addition to his time as a managing partner, he's also been a programmer, a writer, a teacher, a public speaker, and not to mention a bit of a poker aficionado. We'll get more into that during the episode proper. I'm really excited to have the chance to be able to interview him, and I know you guys are going to love this one. Thank you. Okay, welcome to our inaugural episode. As you might have surmised, I'm Dingo, and you're listening to the Saffron Academy podcast. I'm joined today by Hasib Qureshi, a managing partner at Dragonfly Capital. Dragonfly Capital recently made the news by launching their new $225 million fund, to invest in DeFi, NFTs, Ethereum Layer 2 solutions, and more. But before we get into all of that, let's talk a little bit about yourself, Azeeb. <laughs> How you doing? Hey, Dingo. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, we've been kind of burning the, uh, the candle at both ends lately, yes. coordinating with our guys in, uh, in China. And I was wondering, you know, how's everything been with you? Because I know you're in Singapore right now. And how's everything going over there? I'm from SF actually, uh, but I'm in Singapore at the moment. I was in Taiwan earlier, so I've been, I've been globetrotting a bit as much as can, as much as anyone can right now, given the, you know, the limitations on travel. Right. Um, but it's been, it's been actually really amazing to see the different. You know, I feel like for the last two years, or year and a half, I guess it's been, uh, we've all been uh, unable to see each other, and everything's been so digitally mediated. It's kind of. A bit jarring, actually, to be to be back, like meeting with entrepreneurs and, and builders and, and old friends in person again. Uh, but it's been really wonderful. I, I, I miss it so much. So, what have what have you noticed traveling? Because I honestly haven't been out of the country. It's not it's not easy. Uh, everything everything is ten times harder and uh, slightly more nerve wracking. But um, the the one downside is that now you know vaccines are getting distributed in the U.S. and uh, given that I'm a uh, given that I'm a foreigner in the countries that I go, foreigners are everywhere the last on the list of priorities to get vaccinated. So if I want to get vaccinated, I have to head back to the US, uh, which I'm, I'm probably going to do in about a month. Okay. But other than that, I mean, Singapore is a really burgeoning crypto community. There's, it's kind of become the new Hong Kong. So a lot of the um, you know, exchanges and kind of CFI companies that were normally based in Hong Kong, where they tend to have their international headquarters, where they serve kind of the Pan-Asia market, most of them have moved down into Singapore because of more favorable regulations. No kidding. And so as a result, Singapore has become this new kind of hotspot for crypto founders and, and a, a lot of great ideas. So 
uh, it's exciting to see so much of a community forming here. Yeah, I think in the U.S. as well. I think Wyoming, I believe it was, was the uh, the big kind of state right now that is trying to <laughs> actually like entice people to come over. Yeah, I I don't know how well it's working, but you know, there's always there's always like these entrepreneurial cities that are trying. You know, I mean, Miami Miami is doing actually a pretty good job with this uh, with the uh, the mayor. I think his name is Mayor Suarez, um, getting a bunch of crypto people excited and being very open to innovation and and uh, giving people great incentives for coming over. Uh, but, you know, there's like, I, I will say that in America, at least, you know, there's sort of 500 like Silicon Valley wannabes. Um, and there's really, there's really just one Silicon Valley. So <laughs> when I head back, like, it's still, it's still, it still is the epicenter of tech innovation in the U.S., COVID or no COVID. Yeah. yeah it's really cool. Um, I, yeah, I just wonder too, because I know, because you know, I also have a background in video production and I know that, you know, Atlanta really really help bolster their economy by having all these tax incentives to Hollywood and all these other filming companies mm. to help set up shop there. And I'm wondering like, you know, is Miami going to be the, the first place to, you know, capitalize on that to really kind of drive that business there? Is it going to be Wyoming? You know, I think it's kind of a fun, you know, anybody's guess at this point. Well, the one thing that's for sure, the one thing that's for sure, which is kind of emblematic of you guys is that at least in crypto, it matters less and less where you are. Oh, yeah. You know, crypto is such a global phenomenon that, you know, if there's one thing that COVID has taught us, it's that physical location is no object to building something really uh, world-changing. And so much of the, so many of the protocols, I mean, you guys are, you guys are one of them. You guys are fully decentralized team, mm -hmm. um, the team behind, behind SFI. And that was something that people, you know, venture capitalists in particular, just did not believe in that two years ago. You know, I remember back when the pandemic really started in full force, you know, call it in March, uh, there were so many traditional VCs who were claiming that funding is just going to, like the, the tap is going to turn off for the next year until this is all over because venture, venture capitalists have to meet people in person. You can't run the industry without in-person meetings. That was the, it was sort of this enshrined kind of almost like traditional superstitious belief that in order to invest in something great, you have to like meet the founder, go for a walk with them, look them in the eye, kind of see into their soul. And the moment the market started coming back, you know, in, in, in summer, um, all that shit went up. Yeah. And suddenly people were writing these, you know, hundred million plus dollar growth rounds into companies moving crazy fast. And of course, nobody was meeting anybody in person. Right. And suddenly you realize like, huh, all the stuff that we thought was super important to what we do. Turns out it's just kind of, it's, it's nice to have, but it's not essential. You can, you can, you can really do it without that. And I think crypto is just a, a universe where we're clearly not going back to that world. You know, like obviously we, we invested in you guys in the middle of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we, we, maybe for those who are not familiar, Dragonfly struck up a deal with the, um, with, to invest in, in, into, into SFI um, through, the, through the treasury. And we did that without ever meeting anybody in person. Um, and we couldn't, of course, because, you know, members of the team are pseudonymous. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were so excited by what you guys are doing. And in the in this new world, it's just really obvious. This is how things are going to work. You don't need to meet the people in person if the product and the community is entirely digital in the first place. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Like, I always try and, and look at things kind of like the glass half full. And I look at, you know, COVID, I look at the uh, paradigm shift that it is bringing to the world. And I think that if there is a, you know, a good thing to come out of COVID, you're right. It, it is kind of normalized uh, working from home and by extension, you know, it's normalized this sort of digital kind of like global 
uh, workspace where, you know, you can coordinate with people from across the globe. You know, we're doing it right now. And, it, and it's such a cool way to, uh, at least for me in my own experience, kind of be exposed to different sorts of uh, cultures and lifestyles and, uh, you know, everything in between. I'd like to get a little bit, because Tasib, you have got such an interesting backstory. So let's dial it back just a little bit here and <laughs> talk a little bit more about kind of like how you grew up, your your maybe your education, and then some maybe pivotal moments in your life that you feel have played or have influenced rather in your decision to kind of, you know, pursue investing and that sort of thing. Because I think there's a lot of people that are listening to this uh, that are from varying walks of life, have varying amounts of capital, have, uh, you know, maybe playing with the idea of being in this new uh, nascent industry. And they are you know, playing with the idea of, well, what do I invest in? How do I identify something that is really you know, worth investing in? Or how, how can I make that distinction? Sure, sure. So I grew up in Texas, uh, in a small town. Most, most of my upbringing was in a small town called Dripping Springs, which uh, at the time, it was a town of about 2,000 people. And I was pretty much the only brown kid uh, going to, to, that, to that, in that school system alongside my two brothers. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was an interesting place to grow up because it was one of those places that was kind of so boring that you, you sort of, you had to, your mind had to be elsewhere. And uh, in a way that was, a, it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise for me because it, it led me to um, really becoming kind of an, of an, of an internet native person. Um, which I think there's a there's a sort of a generation I think around the uh, around the late '90s of sort of the first fully online generation. Uh, that was me. I was like right at the cusp of of when that digital transformation was taking place. So you know, I remember as a kid, kind of growing up in like MSN chat rooms and oh yeah, uh, AOL chat rooms and you know, <laughs> I just totally got like, nostalgia. I know, I know. I must have been I must have been like 11 years old when I first started just really spending a lot of time in digital spaces and digital communities. And finding myself more interested in participating in that world than I did in, you know, my own middle school and high school. Um, and so, you know, as I was as I was getting older, um, eventually I went to college. I, I I had a pretty hazy idea of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I, I sort of knew that I wanted to do something meaningful, but I didn't really know what that meant. And so, uh, I. Uh, I ended up actually, when I was 16 years old, uh, I ended up getting into playing online poker. And that was, uh, it, was it was somewhat random how, how that started. I just had a group of friends who invited me to play a game of poker with them. And I'd never, never played poker before. Uh, I played like, you know, five card stud with the cousins or something, but I've never really played like betting poker with money. Um, and so I played a game of poker. I had no idea what I was doing, lost a bunch of money. Um, I mean, for me, at the, <laughs> as a kid at the time, it was money, but you know, it was like five bucks or something. And uh, I was so kind of uh, frustrated that I didn't, I didn't know how to play poker. I didn't understand the rules really. I didn't really understand how you know, kind of betting and folding and all the stuff really worked. And so I ended up reading this article, like going up and reading a bunch of articles about, about poker. And I learned that uh, actually there were a bunch of people playing poker online who were quite young, sort of college kids who were making a lot of money and doing really well uh, using statistics and game theory and all these things that, that were uh, pushing them to, at the forefront, ahead of the old guard of the traditional poker players who grew up in like Vegas and Dallas card rooms. Uh, 
I thought that just sounded so cool. And I was like, you know, I, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time online anyway. Uh, I bet I could learn how to do this. And so I, I got, I got to start as a 16 year old playing poker online. Uh, I didn't have any money naturally. So I, I was doing it under my older brother's name. And uh, I ended up going from $50 that I got for free from an online promotion. Uh, and I worked that up over the course of a year from $50 to $70,000 at the end of a year. Oh my God. And uh, basically by the time that I was 19 years old, I was ranked uh, one of the top 10 online no limit holding players in the world. So I made a lot of money at a young age. And the, the interesting thing about poker is that, I mean, it teaches you a lot of lessons, but one of the things that I really take away from it is I have a tremendous amount of understanding and empathy for the people who made a lot of money in crypto. And the reason why I say that is that there's so many commonalities between the way that online poker was back in the day when I was playing back in the, the, late, uh, uh, the late aughts. Um, and what I see from the sort, of the sort of young generation that's making a lot of money in crypto, especially around crypto trading. Um, so for one, it's, it, you know, it's devoting your career toward a, a weird and somewhat subversive way to make money that is not traditionally prestigious, but is very, very uh, undercrowded, right? Not a lot of people understand it yet. And uh, it's something that, you know, you're not going to get accolades from your, from your parents or, you know, from, uh, from a significant other's family. They're not going to be very impressed to hear that you're a crypto trader or that you're a, you're a professional poker player. But <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're smart, you're somewhat analytical, you're willing to do weird things to make money, um, you can do extremely well, as a lot of people in this generation have. Um, for some reason, they both tend to be quite male dominated and they both have, I've noticed the cultures are very similar where there's a, there's a lot of self-deprecation. People call themselves degenerates. The same thing in the <laughs> same thing in the poker world is like people lovingly call themselves degens. Uh, there's a lot of crossover. And I know a bunch of people who are ex poker players who found their way into crypto as well, although for different, for different reasons, for different people. Um, and so there's something, and there's something also, of course, about understanding and being able to take intelligent risks over and over again. That uh, unites, I think, a lot of what I saw in the, in the poker community and what I see in the crypto community. And, and another thing too is, is just the fact that because these things are not, because these are such kind of global phenomena, um, they're primarily held together by online cultures as opposed to in-person cultures. You know? So even you know, if you work for Google or Facebook, Although it's an online company, your, your primary culture is with the people around you. But if you're a crypto trader or a crypto, uh, you know, a DeFi, um, you know, farmer, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever you, you, you call yourself, uh, it's kind of similar to being an online poker player in that your community is the global community of all the people who do this together. And some of them are competitive. Some of them help you. Some of them hurt you. People share information, but then they also hold back information. It's very, very similar. And so that's one of the things that I, I feel like I deeply understand about crypto from my background as a poker player but every generation i think has a hustle that young really aggressive and somewhat subversive people are drawn towards that allows them to make a lot of money and in the late you know late uh, 2000s it was online poker i think in the early 2010s it was fantasy sports and it seems like now crypto trading and crypto trading might be uh, declining now just because it's gotten so much more efficient. You know, now it's like DeFi, DeFi farming, and there will be some next thing. There will be some new frontier 
whether it be, you know, speculating on NFTs or, you know, some other thing that's at this frontier of um, finding creative ways to, to push edges that are farther out than what any, most normal people can see. Um, so that, that's uh, kind of, I was a professional poker player for a while. I ended up quitting poker in, in, uh, uh, when, I, when I turned 21. Uh, went back to school. I studied, I didn't study anything technical. I actually studied English and philosophy. But uh, I ended up moving to Silicon Valley, uh, learning how to code. I took a coding bootcamp, uh, learned how to code, and eventually got a job at Airbnb as a software engineer working on payments fraud. And that's where I first caught the crypto bug. So I'd known about crypto for a very long time. You know, a lot of poker players, like I mentioned, a lot of crossover between poker and, and crypto. And, you know, there are a lot of poker sites that only accepted uh, Bitcoin uh, to, you know, to avoid international banking issues. Um, and I'd bought Bitcoin before just to like kind of buy little things here and there, try it out. Uh, but I never really got the story. I always thought it was just kind of, you know, it was sort of weird way to buy drugs online, which is like, okay, cool. I guess, I guess that should be a thing. <laughs> uh, but it was really when I was working on international payments at Airbnb that the crypto story really started to make sense to me. You know, before I was at Airbnb, I'd never touched payments at all. I didn't really know very much about how payments work. And at Airbnb, you know, Airbnb is an international company. So you're paying people, it's a travel company, right? So you're paying people in, you know, 90 plus countries around the world. And your perception about how international payments works, if you haven't spent any time in it, is that you swipe a credit card and your money just gets there. And there's some digital, you know, there's some digital pipes in between. Uh, but working on that system, you realize how the, the presentation of what's happening is completely disanalogous to what's actually on the back end. What's actually on the back end is that there is no international payment system. There's a bunch of disparate payment systems around the world that don't really totally talk to each other, that are all kind of janky and different, that are all, most of them are super old and kind of broken. You know, there's like, there, there's, you know, CSVs being emailed at midnight every night and being manually reconciled. There's places where we can't actually digitally pay people. And so we're, we're manually sending, you know, checks into PO boxes and somebody's hitting an API to let us know it's been picked up. Like there's all this jank on the back end to give the customer the impression that there's an international digital payment system that's real time and 24 seven and you can just click a button on a website and your money gets there. Uh, but that's not at all how it works. It's, it's this giant freaking mess. It's just big ball spaghetti. And as an engineer, when you see that, your first instinct is, oh, we should just throw this out and start over. We should like build a system that actually comports to the needs that we have as a digital first, global, real time, economy, right? Like as an internet company, Airbnb is, is 24 seven, but none of these payment systems are 24 seven. Like, why are they not? Why, why do they shut down a weekend? Like, what the hell is this? And that, that was when I realized, oh, that's what crypto is. Crypto is these, it's these, it's these, you know, uh, engineers and philosophers and computer scientists and photographers and cyber, cyberpunks, cypherpunks and, uh, uh, you know, economists who all got together and said, knowing what we know today about, you know, peer-to-peer uh, -peer systems and game theory and cryptography and, and, and a monetary policy, how would you design a monetary system differently? I, I, the, thing, the thing that dawned on me was that all these different cryptocurrencies, because, you know, the natural question, especially in uh, 2016, 2017, was like, what the, why the hell are there so many, you know? 
and you know why is there bitcoin and litecoin and ripple and blah 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 feathercoin and all these random things and uh i realized the answer was oh these are each different answers to that question of how should a monetary system be constructed and i at that point i basically was converted because i believe that what happens in this industry and look i'm not a i'm not a bitcoin maximalist um i'm not somebody who's convinced we're going to be paying each other with bitcoin or even even either um but i do believe that what happens in this industry is absolutely going to change the trajectory of money and the way we do money 50 years from now is not going to be the way we did money 50 years ago so that's what convinced me quit Airbnb and, and go full time uh, chasing the blockchain. But anyway, that's my that's my spiel about about leaving leaving Airbnb. I, it's so funny how everyone seems to that I, I've spoken to just seems to have this sort of light bulb moment, and you know it. It sounds like you got it much earlier than most. It seems like the people who get into crypto, at least as the you know early adopter kind of wave. They just, they really get into it. And um, I can speak to that myself. I mean, I kind of, I'm coming up on my second year here. So much shorter than your duration in the industry. Uh, but um, I think my own external circumstances, which, you know, COVID and lockdowns and all the uh, money printing and that sort of stuff kind of helped lead me to have a similar sort of like aha mm -hmm. moment. Do you think that is like a, a contagious sort of thing where it's like this mind virus off us that, you know, once people like kind of dip their toes in the, in the pond, you know, they really run the risk of getting really into crypto once they understand like, hey, you know, all these systems that we take for granted that we assume, like you said earlier, they just work perfectly and they're all kind of intertwined or whatever are actually kind of like cobbled together and sort of hanging by a thread. And we need some new, like new systems sort of rise up and replace a lot of that stuff. I think so much of it is that, you know, so many people I remember, you have these conversations again now, a little bit less so than in 2017, where people will tell you like, look, I, I just think Bitcoin doesn't make sense. Or I think Ether doesn't make sense. Or like none of this stuff, none of this stuff can possibly be valuable or be money. Um, and you ask them like, well, okay, you, you think this stuff doesn't make sense. Um, do, you, do you understand how money works? <laughs> <laughs> like you understand how like and and most of the answer is no because like you're nobody teaches you how money works nobody teaches you how the financial system came to be what it is today we sort of assume that everything is rational but um it's it's this very path dependent evolutionary process that led us to where we are today and i think what what you what you find without fail is that the people who understand money and the why the financial system is structured the way it is the best are the people who are most able to understand what is so compelling about crypto. Hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean they agree or that they think that crypto is going to be the you know, be all end all, um, but they understand it. And most of the time people who say, who just have this instinctive reaction of like, oh, Bitcoin, that doesn't, you know, no. Um, it's usually because they don't understand money. Right. And, you know, I think for, for myself, like that light bulb process, a lot of that was really, to be honest, me coming to understand money. And understand really what it was as opposed to just simply this this kind of function in my life that's taken care of by the powers that be mm. and when you see how you know uh, i think part of becoming an adult if, <laughs> if i can if i can go here <laughs> i think a lot of becoming an adult is realizing more and more that the systems of uh, authority and tradition that you know sort of the way things are realizing how arbitrary they are that is the process of becoming an adult, is realizing not that things are, the things around you, the way that things work, 
are right because they are this way, but rather they are right because this works. We, we wouldn't be here if the system that we have around us didn't work. If it did, we, you know, we, would, we, we wouldn't have made it. Um, but just because it works doesn't mean that it's optimal. It doesn't mean that it's what we're going to be doing 20 years from now or 10 years from now. And you can see that around you, how much the world has dramatically changed in the last 20 years. Um, but it's even more obvious just seeing how things have changed the last two years with, with the advent of COVID. Um, you can see how quickly and how much things can change. Uh, you know, just speaking about the thing about meetings, like I don't think business travel is ever going to come back the way that it used to be because we just we realize now how much we were bullshitting ourselves about how much travel needed to happen. And in reality, like, yeah, meeting somebody on Zoom or doing a podcast interview is great. It's not 100%, but it's like 85%, which is, which is awesome. Um, the same thing, I think, is, is part of how so many people, they have their, their mindset around what crypto is transformed. Because just another element of those things that you realize, like, huh, crypto sounds like this really sci-fi idea of this kind of non-sovereign you know, community of online you know, pseudonymous people who created money that's not owned by any country and that can't be stopped and blah, blah, blah. Like that sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel. And the first time that I really wrapped my head around what was going on with Ethereum, I thought this, you know, somebody's making this up or this is just like some weird corner of the dark net that like no one really, you know, it, it's, it's, it seems so far-fetched on, on first, first uh, hearing, which is one of the reasons why the thing that honestly is most convincing about crypto is not anything I can tell you about, you know, uh, well, here's why it makes sense, or here's how, you know, you can see this as a divergent evolution of money or how it's more efficient for smart contracts or norm enforcement or this or that. Um, the most convincing thing that convinces people about crypto is just seeing it survive. Yeah. That's the most convincing thing. Seeing it persevere. That's right. You saw it, you see it in 2015 and you're like, oh, this is crazy. You know, the, Bitcoin's at $200, you know, insane. And then you see it again in, in 2017, it blows up like crazy and then it collapses. You say, okay, great. I'm glad I ignored that. And then it shows up again yep. and it's not going to go away. <laughs> People realize now this thing is not going to fucking go away. You have to understand it. You have to deal with it. And that I find by far is the most convincing argument in favor of crypto is just, you can't argue against technology you can't argue against the future it just comes whether you like it or not yeah as much heartbreak as the 2018 crash i'm sure gave out to you know millions of people i think overall it was extremely healthy for the the industry uh, just for investor confidence going forward agreed agreed so let's dial back a little bit because i i want to get to you know your time at dragonfly capital which is in my opinion one of the, the most prestigious venture firms uh, around and when it comes to crypto. And uh, I'm really excited to hear about some of that. So you ended up leaving Airbnb. Yeah. Kind of walk us through like that decision to get more involved in the industry. I mean, I know you had that light bulb moment, but like, what was your path forward from that? Mm. Like what steps did you take? Honest answer is that I had no freaking clue. I had no clue. <laughs> I knew that I wanted to be in crypto, but I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't understand the industry all that well. And so, you know, my, my instinct when I'm entering into a new domain that uh, I don't really know very well is to just go and immerse myself in it. To steep my brain in sort of the juices of whatever it is I'm trying to learn and just let it sit there and like soak stuff up. So, you know, I, I, I started uh, spending a bunch of time around the people who I knew who were already in the crypto industry. Uh, I started listening to podcasts, reading, uh, going to going to talks like 
anything that I could, you know, so I started building stuff, prototyping, coding up things that I was learning about, reading white papers, just pushing myself as deep into the industry as I could. And at first, very little of it made sense to me, as I imagine, you know, for somebody coming in today, very little of what they're interacting with probably makes very much sense to them either, especially given how much more developed things are than when I started. Um, but, you know, I, I just kind of kept, even when I didn't understand things, even when you know, things are way over my head, which they were a lot of the time, um, I just kind of kept throwing myself in there until eventually, you know, kind of like a, kind of like a child, you just sort of start to see the patterns. You start to, you start to understand like, Oh, okay. These two things go together. Oh, okay. This is what lightning is. Oh, okay. This is what a you know, hash time on contract is. Oh, here, this is what this thing is. And you start to develop the concepts and slowly and slowly you become, you uncover more and more of the map. Um, I, you know, I, I, at first I was like, okay, I want to build a company. Uh, but then I realized I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> I didn't know what anyone needed. So you can't really build, you can't really build something unless you know a problem that needs to get solved. Um, and I realized I didn't understand the problems in crypto well enough. Uh, and so I decided instead to go join a startup and to, uh, you know, go work in the trenches and, and build up my intuitions that way. So um, actually I started before any of that, I, I was doing some independent security research and uh, me and, and a buddy of mine, Yvonne, we ended up uncovering a, a, a front running exploit against Bancor, which if you remember was one of the very first DeFi protocols that mm-hmm. uh, uh, launched in 2017. They had this crazy ICO back then. And um, we published this vulnerability and that was kind of how we first got some street cred within the, within the crypto world. And then uh, I joined this company called 21, which became Earn.com, which got acquired by Coinbase. Um, that's where I got to know Balaji Srinivasan, um, who you know, became the CTO of Coinbase soon after that. Um, then I was working on, after I left there, I was working on a, a stablecoin startup when uh, I ended up getting to know Naval, uh, Naval Ravikant, who uh, is co-founder of AngelList. Uh, he ran a fund called, or still runs a fund called Metastable Capital. And he ended up recruiting me to come onto the investing side. And that's actually how I ended up becoming an investor. And that's a, that's a, it's a long story. I can go into that if you want, but I, I, I don't want the entire interview to just be uh, kind of me walking through the minutia of my, of my, uh, my career. No, I, you just, you've had such an interesting um, path. And I, I think that's a, that's a common throughput with a lot of people in this industry. Um, they, they think outside the box, they're early adopters, they're big risk takers. Um, but, you know, sometimes those risks pay off. And I, you're right, we could sit here and talk, you know, for another hour about your story. But um, <laughs> I feel like we should talk about SFI at some point. But sorry. Yeah, I was like, let's kind of shift this conversation a little bit. Um, but so going forward, the Dragonfly Fund 2 that would rolled out. Yes. Uh, in March, you made the press release for it. Is a two hundred twenty-five million dollar fund to invest in DeFi, NFTs, yep. um, ETH Layer Two solutions, and uh, centralized finance. So, I guess on a grand scale of things, um, what are specific things that you look for, like you personally look for when you approach like investing and deciding, hey, I want to, you know, believe in these people. I want to put my money into, um, you know, watching this this protocol grow. Like, what are some key tenets that you you know, look for to identifying a project that has that kind of untapped potential? I think it's, investing has a lot of different frameworks that people apply to it. I think the most common breakdown of sort of the three components, especially of early stage investing, are team, product, and market. As a team, it's sort of obvious, right? You want to back kind of brilliant, early adopting, aggressive founders. 
Um, and even even in the decentralized finance space, where of course many of these projects are decentralized, pseudonymous, there's a community element to it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there is a generally limited number of people who are who are driving the majority of the work. Um, and betting on great visionaries who have a clear sense of where this thing ought to go is a big part of investing. Second thing is product. Product is simply, you know, what, what are they building? How good is it? Is it usable? Uh, is it delightful? Is it 10x better than its competition? And the third thing is market, which is, you know, you might build an amazing, amazing, you know, uh, like tax optimizing software, which is great, but how big of a market is that? Right? If you build the best tax optimizing software in the world, that's pretty good. Um, but is it as big as building the next Ethereum? You know, probably not. Um, so market is always a question that kind of modulates what, even if you knock it out of the park, you become an absolutely dominant um, protocol or a company or whatever. Uh, how, how big can you actually get, which is, you know, ultimately as an investor, uh, that's what I'm thinking about. Cause I'm thinking about, okay, how do I, how do I invest in, in the most important uh, protocol or product of, of this generation? And ultimately the size of the market is, is the, the cap on how big that outcome can be. So every different investor kind of has a different weighting of how they think about team versus product versus market. And I think at different stages, those three, you know, the kind of the three points on that triangle uh, become differently important, right? At the very earliest stages, investing is almost all about team. Because, you know, oftentimes it's like, you know, you're, you're in pre-product, right? You're investing in somebody and they just have an idea or they're just like, look, you know, me and my two friends, we've got this thing. We've got like kind of a sketch of a demo. Uh, we've got some mock-ups, but like we need some money to quit our jobs and go do this. Uh, well, in that case, okay, it's pretty much all team, right? There's very little, uh, a lot of times the market is, poorly defined or it's very likely they're going to pivot. So market isn't as strong of a question and product, there's no product. Um, as, a, as a company develops or a protocol develops, um, then I think it sort of shifts more toward product where it's like, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're starting to really show your chops and it becomes less about the founders and the, you know, a great story or just, you know, really charismatic energy that's driving the project forward. It's more about, okay, what did you actually build? What did you, know, does it work? Do people want it? Is it usable? You know, the metrics growing. Um, and as a company gets, or as a protocol gets more and more mature, then the question really becomes about market, right? So, so think for example, something like, uh, um, think something, something in DeFi, like Nexus Mutual, right? Um, Nexus Mutual right now, they're the market leader in you know, DeFi insurance uh, or you know, on-chain insurance. Uh, and so when you're when you're betting on Nexus Mutual, part of it is betting on product, part of it is betting on team, but it's much more so betting on market, right? It's a question of, okay, these guys are the market leader right now in insurance. Like maybe they'll stay the leader, maybe they'll lose a spot, but so much of a bigger component of the question is where is this market going? If this market is not going to grow, then it really doesn't matter how much better they do, they do because they're not going to push the, increase the size of the market. But if you're convinced the market is going to 10X, 100X, because more and more people are going to come onto onto DeFi and more and more people are going to need insurance, then it's like, okay, well, probably the market leader is going to continue being the market leader. And, you know, that, that, that significantly raises the ceiling on what this thing can become. So that's sort of the way that I think about how to approach investing. It depends on stage and it also depends on um, the particular uh, type of company it is, right? So DeFi versus CeFi, so to speak. Yeah, that's it's really interesting just hearing that sort of broken down. And clearly that is a, a framework and a method that is not only effective, but also been incredibly successful for Dragonfly. Um, you know, you guys have been backing, you know, Compound and Maker and a lot of these really amazing 
um, you know, initiatives and protocols throughout the industry. So I guess I will pivot to this question. You know, that criteria that you mentioned and that that sort of those guidelines for identifying uh, what protocols you see potential in, what kind of protocols you know you believe and the fundamentals of. How does that translate into your decision uh, to invest in the Saffron Finance? Well, so we we've been tracking the kind of you know risk tranching space for a while. I mean, we've been tra- we've been tracking DeFi for a long time. So I think I, you know, I mentioned uh, you know <laughs> literally the very first thing I did in crypto was was uh, uh, you know poking around Bancor, which was the very first uh, arguably the very first DeFi project on Ethereum, and um, you know early. Early in MakerDAO, we invested in the in the Compound pre-launch. Um, uh, sorry, not pre-launch, but pre uh, pre-token, and um, investors in DYDX, One Inch, you know, a bunch of a bunch of the early generation of, of DeFi projects before DeFi became really really hot. Uh, and so, it's something we've been thinking about for a very very long time: is how is risk going to get packaged and sold within DeFi? The buying and selling of risk is one of the most common activities that happens in traditional finance for good reason, is that there are some people who have uh, high risk appetite and some people who have very low risk appetite and being able to transfer risk from people who cannot afford to have that risk. Like, for example, a, a company that needs to, um, you know, let, let's say like a you know, fast food business that needs to minimize their exposure to weather risk in their supply chain uh, because, you know, they, they run a very, very tight margin business. Um, to a financial speculator who's able to offset that risk or able to take on that risk in exchange for uh, in exchange for some premium, right? That is one of the most common activities that happens in finance is ultimately the buying and selling of risk. And so in DeFi, naturally as DeFi matures, one of the big questions is how is risk going to be bought and sold in DeFi? And up till fairly recently, the answer was that we don't know. There's no real, there's no real way to buy and sell risk in DeFi. Um, it was it, it was it wasn't that long ago that we started actually getting perps in DeFi. For a long time, there were no professional swaps on most of these DeFi coins. Uh, certainly not on chain ones. And, and then you know, FTX I think kind of kicked off a trend of, of launching lots of perpetuals on DeFi coins uh, through centralized venues. Uh, but for a long time, there was really nothing. There was it's kind of um, you know sort of open open field. Uh, and so seeing what what SFI was doing in risk tranching, you know, risk tranching is one of the oldest methods of being able to buy and sell risk, right? Because you know, if you just think about debt, the way that debt is structured is that debt is senior to equity, right? So if a company gets liquidated, the first thing that happens is that they pay off all their debt holders and anything that's left over goes to the equity holders. That's tranching, right? Uh, SFI we saw was the, was the first and most robust solution to the question of how to do risk tranching on chain. And we just thought, you know, I mean, you know, kind of looking at those three prongs, uh, market, huge. Absolutely, the buying and selling of risk is going to be a huge, huge thing in DeFi. Big part of the reason why you are not seeing more adoption from institutions, from retail, from whoever, is that DeFi is really risky. And it's hard for people to control that risk. And having tools for people to be able to offload that risk to somebody who's able to take it on in exchange for, for premiums, um, that's such a fundamental financial activity that is absolutely going to be essential if DeFi takes off. So market's big. Second thing, product, you know, dope. I mean, yeah. <laughs> obviously SFI, you know, version one, was still, was still early and there's still a lot to figure out. Um, but you were the first guys to get it working. It was the first protocol that we saw that really was mm-hmm. doing the thing that it said on the tin. Uh, and so we were, we were just tremendously impressed by that. 
And uh, it's a hard problem and there's still a lot to, to figure out and to solve. Um, but we just saw, and you know, then going to number three, which is the team, um, you know, we just saw that the team was absolutely fantastic. And they had been iterating on this and working on this problem before anybody else did. And uh, they built a really vibrant and powerful community. So to us, SFI seemed like a really natural project for us to throw our weight behind. Yeah. Uh, I, although I want to caveat all this with saying none of this is investment advice. You know, I don't think anything about SFI token, uh, but uh, we're very right. excited about SFI, the, uh, the, the, the project. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for the, those kind words. Yeah, I, I was really floored. Um, and I still am floored every, on my day-to-day, -to -day too, just being around these incredibly smart people just all the time and interacting with them. Uh, Psykeeper, I don't know. But he, that guy is a genius. Oh, my gosh. Just so incredible. <laughs> Very humble, too. And it, He's yeah. incredible. Uh, so I'm really proud of the Absolutely. team. And I, I'm glad that you know, that sort of echoed. So going ahead from that, and I know one of the other big uh, cornerstones of the Dragonfly Fund 2 was investing in ETH Layer 2 solutions. And I was wondering, I've kind of been looking at this sort of space myself and kind of throwing a little bit of um, mm -hmm. you know, interest here and there in terms of uh, ETH competitors. Uh, what are your thoughts on that sort of stuff? Do you think it's, you know, this digital arms race, do you think Ethereum will still reign king? Do you think, you know, there is some sort of uh, potential for maybe a lesser known protocol like ADA or Avalanche or even Polkadot? It's a good question. I think to some degree, you know, two years ago, I was really unsure what the answer to this question was going to be. I shouldn't say was really unsure, but I was maybe, you know, 70% confident Ethereum would win and, you know, 30% like, who knows? Now I think it's more like 90% that Ethereum wins and 10% of a who knows. You know, and who knows could be any number of players, whether it be Avalanche or Neo Protocol or something, you know, something even farther down the list. I don't think BSC is <laughs> running for that, but... Um, <laughs> But I think, you know, BSC is still an important part of the, uh, the pantheon of, of blockchains. Um, I, I think a lot of this comes from the fact that Ethereum has just built such an incredible network effect over the last two years, especially with the advent of DeFi. And so much of what makes Ethereum Ethereum is not even about the technology. If you think about it, Ethereum is already something like, depending on how you count it, like, you know, six to eight years old. Because Ethereum was originally... They started working on Ethereum in 2013. That was when the, was when the white paper was originally done. Um, and, you know, it actually launched in 2015 properly, which is now six years ago, right? So Ethereum is old technology. And obviously, it's, it's been iterated on and it's been improved in marginal ways. But ETH2, that, that, there's a reason why ETH2 is a complete rewrite of Ethereum 1.0, is that Ethereum 1.0, it belongs to the, you know, it's, it's basically like the MS-DOS of kind of the crypto operating system. And inevitably, it's going to get displaced over time. The question is by what? And so far, the question is, you know, is this by what going to be one? Is it going to be Ethereum 2.0 itself? Two, is it going to be maybe by layer twos, such that layer two systems on top of ETH1, which then migrate over to ETH2, where you're mostly spending your time on the layer two. You're not really interacting that much with ETH 2.0 directly. Um, and you're just kind of jumping from layer two to layer two, almost like, you know, sort of like jumping from, uh, you know, different servers in a video game. Um, that might be the way that uh, ETH 2.0 and the future of Ethereum looks. Uh, and that's actually the future that Vitalik described in, in a post that he did, uh, I think, late last year. So it's, it's a little too early to know for certain. But I think what we do know is that Ethereum has such a powerful network effect, such a powerful community. Um, I mean, we talk about network effects very, very loosely, but you know, blockchains are 
literally networks. So if anything has a network effect, it's certainly a blockchain. Um, and uh, you know, part of the reason why so many projects have to build on Ethereum is not just because of the tooling and the community and the daily active users and the TVL and all these other all these other things that makes Ethereum Ethereum, um, but the 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 most obvious thing, especially for something like Saffron, right, where you guys are a financial uh, protocol. You know, there, there's this old joke um, of uh, you know the, the the this bank robber gets uh, a famous bank robber finally gets caught by the police and the police ask him, um, you know, so so why did you why did you rob the bank? And the robber's answer is well because that's where the money is. And in a way, that's why everybody has to build on Ethereum is because that's where the money is. You know, so if you're a financial protocol and you have aspirations to do something really big, you have to go where the money is and the money's on Ethereum. Yeah, I, I, I echo a lot of that sentiment. Um, do you think that other competing technologies like or, you know, ETH, ETH competitors might even be integrated in some sort of form into ETH? Like if they don't replace it outright? Arguably, they already are. Most of these other layer ones, uh, not most of them, but many of them, uh, actually, they, they have EVM compatibility. So you can just port contracts directly over. I mean, you know, BSC is the most obvious one where on Binance Smart Chain, it's literally just in, you know, in Ethereum form. Um, but Avalanche, for example, Nier has one upcoming. Um, uh, you know, a bunch of other layer ones, uh, Tron, have this property that they're EVM, which is the, the virtual machine of Ethereum, uh, which is you know all the computer instructions that to, to, you could take contracts written on Ethereum and just you know dump them onto another blockchain and they just work out of the box. Uh, they have that property because Ethereum has become so dominant that you know Ethereum contracts are just they're the lingua franca of blockchain smart contracts. So you know it, it's actually kind of an uphill battle for those smart contract chains that don't have EVM compatibility, like you know the Solanas or the Polkadots of the world. Um, I think Solana, I believe Solana has EVM compatibility on its roadmap, but uh, right now, right now they don't have um, they don't have any native compatibility. Um, so that's that's one big element. Is that in a way the answer is already yes. Already they have sort of bent their architectures to say, look, we we work with Ethereum and the Ethereum toolchain. Um, but in addition to that, so many of these blockchains have Ethereum bridges. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember back in 2017, so much of the story of Polkadot and Cosmos were that there is going to be generalized blockchain interoperability. And that's such an important problem because there are all these blockchains and they all need to talk to each other. And you can sort of imagine, like, if you, if you sort of imagine a, a kind of map of, you know, uh, America, like a bunch of different states, and every single state is like a, or every single city, rather, is like a blockchain, and every single city needs to fly to every single other city, right? That is the world that we thought we were going to have to live in where you need like this complicated flight map of like how each city is going to talk to every other city, right? So how Zcash is going to talk to Monero, which is going to talk to Tezos, which is going to talk to Ethereum and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out the actual world we live in is one where there are a bunch of different paths to one place, which is Ethereum. Everybody has built a bridge to Ethereum. Avalanche is a bridge to Ethereum. Solana is a bridge to Ethereum. Binance is a bridge to Ethereum. Everybody bridges to Ethereum and nobody bothers bridging to anybody else which tells you that we're really more like in ancient Rome where you just have this huge, like almost tree of paths that all go to one city, which is Rome. And that today is Ethereum. That's the world that we actually live in with respect to blockchain interoperability, which tells you something about the real structure of 
what is the dominant blockchain and, and what um, what are the sort of, you know, uh, the shipping channels, the trade channels that really matter in this new world that we're seeing. The only trade channel that matters is the trade between your blockchain and Ethereum. Uh, and that, it seems unlikely to change anytime soon, but, but we'll see. That is such a interesting point that I hadn't really fully considered before. I'm glad, I'm really glad you brought that up for us and our, our listeners. As we close out this with respect to your time, I'd like to just ask, you know, what's one thing that you wish you knew earlier when you started your investment journey into crypto, even before, you know, you became a part of an institution, but, you know, even as a retail investor, like what's some sort of piece of wisdom you can impart onto our listeners? <laughs> that's a really, that's a really good question. Uh, let me think for a second. Sure, sure. I think I wish I knew earlier. I think, okay. I think, you know, for me, something I wish I knew earlier is that, um, you know, when I started investing, I was so terrified that I didn't know what I was doing and that I wasn't really qualified to do this. Because how could anybody be qualified to invest <laughs> into crypto? You know, like it, the thing was just barely invented like a few years ago, you know, uh, like Bitcoin's only been around for a decade. I remember, you know, there's these funny postings of like, oh, we want 10 years experience in crypto. <laughs> like crypto has only been around for 10 years. Um, so I think, I think one thing that I... I it took me a long time to really internalize is that um, it's not, uh, you, you don't really need anybody's permission um, or anybody's approval to be good at this. Uh, you just have to do the work. And I, I think it took me a long time to really internalize that. And it's something that I now try to pass on to, uh, a lesson I try to pass on to the people at Dragonfly is that um, you don't need anybody to approve of you or any credentials or any whatever in order to be great at doing this. Um, Crypto is so specific and it's so new and it's so weird and nuanced and multidisciplinary. Uh, the only thing you need to do is do the work. If you do the work, you learn how the stuff works, you spend, you, you spend your time in the trenches, you read the white papers, you play around with the contracts, you blah, 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 right? If you know it better than anybody else does, then you could be really successful in the space. And that's that's the, the beauty of crypto is that it's one of the few things that's really, truly meritocratic in that you either get it or you don't. And if you don't get it, it doesn't matter. No, but nobody, no credential or no having gone to some university or worked at some company is, is going to save your ass if you don't actually know it. I love that. <laughs> That's awful to go out on, man. Awesome. I really appreciate, you know, you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, talk with us. This is great. I really enjoyed it, Dingo.